Hello, 22 Goals listeners. If you're enjoying our show, you might also like some of The Ringer's other narrative podcasts, like Icons Club. That's a history of the NBA told through the voices of legendary players. That Michael Jordan sure gives a great interview. Or maybe you'd like one of our culture narrative shows like Gene and Roger, which is about legendary movie critics Siskel and Ebert. Or you could listen to Gamblers, a show about people who make money off the most surprising stuff. Did you know you can gamble on chess? Also legendary, if you ask me. We like legendary stuff here at The Ringer, and we like you. Thanks for listening. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian, tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Nineteen eighty-nine, E.M. Trout Elementary School, Ponca City, Oklahoma. I am walking up the steps into the school, and I am nervous. My little sixth-grade heart is rattling in my chest like a hamster wheel. I'm nervous because I've shown up at school this morning, determined to take a stand on an issue that matters to me. I've shown up at school this morning determined to be a hero. Apparently, heroes live in terror. E.M. Trout is a long, low, single-story elementary school building made of, like, peach-colored bricks. American flag clanking on the flagpole behind me. E.M. Trout, the guy the school is named after, was a local funeral home owner in Ponca City. Never entirely clear to me why the town named an elementary school after a leading area mortician. The other schools in town, mostly named after presidents. You got Jefferson, you got Washington, there's a Garfield, which is an interesting choice. I go to the funeral home school. I open the door. Other kids are streaming around me in the halls. Sounds of kids talking and laughing. My heart rate quickens. We're supposed to make puppets out of styrofoam balls in art class today. I can't even get excited about styrofoam balls. That's the level of my anxiety. Are all the other kids looking at me? I feel as if I have a spotlight aimed directly at my face. I'll tell you why. 
It's because I'm carrying a copy of Salman Rushdie's 1988 novel, The Satanic Verses. That's correct. The fatwa against Rushdie has just been made public. I'm here at my small-town Oklahoma grade school today to express my defiance to the supreme leader of Iran. This is important. I saw this on the news. The Ayatollah Khomeini in Iran has issued a call for the murder of the Booker Prize-winning writer. You remember this, right? If not from 1989, then you probably remember hearing about it because of the awful attack on Rushdie in New York this past August, which, thank goodness, he survived. At 13, I have no idea what the prestigious British literary award the Booker Prize is, but books are the thing I love most in this world. You do not fuck with writers because I will get my mom to drive me to the bookstore so fast and also give me $20, hopefully, because I can't afford hardcovers on my allowance. Hashtag resistance. I don't know what my vision here is exactly. It's just important to me to be seen with this controversial book. And then, I guess, thanks to my moral courage and some other factors, one thing will lead to another and the regime will crumble in Iran. I don't know. We're taking this protest one step at a time. The reason I'm so nervous, by the way, is not that I think my fellow Pankasidians are in favor of murdering Rushdie. The reason is the word satanic. It's right there on the cover of the book, in this very forbidding, pointy font. If there's one thing you can say about us in 1980s small-town Oklahoma, it's that we are alert to the threat of Satanism. I was forbidden to watch the Dungeons & Dragons cartoon on Saturday mornings a few years earlier because my grandma heard at church that there were men in white vans driving around kidnapping children to use in satanic rituals or something, and Dungeons & Dragons was related somehow. We see this threat everywhere we look. The word satanic on a book in the hands of a kid is definitely going to mean a trip to the principal's office. It might mean the governor mobilizes the state police. The more religious kids in my class will for sure tell me at recess that I'm going to hell when I die, which to be fair, they do a lot anyway, because they are very religious, and I love Dungeons & Dragons cartoons. I walk into Mrs. McConaughey's classroom. I go to my seat. I put the book prominently on my desk. Heroism. Mrs. McConaughey comes into the room. I slide a folder over the book. Practicality. But no, if you're gonna fight for freedom of expression, you have to look tyranny in the eye. I remove the folder. I brace myself for the moment when Mrs. McConaughey sees the book, gasps, 
and declares before the whole class that I am definitely going to hell and maybe also detention. A few seconds later, Mrs. McConaughey walks by my desk. Her eye alights on the book. Moment of truth. She looks at the cover and says, Oh, have you read this yet? Have I read it? Well, no, ma'am, I have not. Too busy saving the world. And she pats the cover and says, Tell me if you like it. And as far as I remember, that's the only time anyone said anything or noticed the book at all. Well, I didn't become a hero to get famous. I'm Brian Phillips, by the way. Welcome to 22 Goals, the story of the World Cup. I'm thinking about that day in the sixth grade. Not actually because I'm trying to make myself look like a hero. Because what's a hero? But sometimes there's a man. Sometimes there's a man. No, I'm thinking about it because I'm wondering what it would be like to be the subjects of today's episode. That feeling of having a spotlight on you at all times. What would it be like to have something that made all eyes turn toward you every time you walked through a door? I mean, actually turn toward you, not spectacularly fail to turn toward you, as in my case. There are some people in this life, and this most definitely applies to the players we're talking about today, Some people come into the world carrying a kind of Salman Rushdie novel of the soul, and everyone notices. Maybe it's talent, maybe it's charisma, maybe it's a lot of confidence in your own hair gel, and those people either get sent to the principal's office or get lionized as heroes immediately. What's that like? I want to say we have a very special episode for you today, but honestly, today's episode is not that big a deal. We're here to talk about Cristiano Ronaldo and Lionel Messi. Not a big deal. Just two of the greatest players of all time, and we're talking about them together. We're doing another two-goal episode because, well, how could we not talk about them together. They're the North and South Poles of the modern game. They're eternally linked. And coincidentally, they're both playing what may very well be their final World Cup. Not a big deal at all. So, what are we going to talk about today? Well, thanks for asking. That's thoughtful of you, and may I say... That color looks really good on you. We're going to talk about two guys who have collectively won 12 Ballons d'Or, 18 top-level league championships in four different countries, nine Champions League titles, one European championship, one Copa America, 
an Olympic gold medal, a World Cup golden ball, a Medal of Merit from the Order of the Immaculate Conception of Vila Vizosa, that's a dynastic order of Portuguese knights, and zero World Cups. Is that relevant? Zero and counting. We're going to talk about two players who couldn't be more different from one another. One of them is short, quiet, elusive, unprepossessing, someone you would not necessarily pick out as an elite athlete. If you saw him walk out of a door marked elite athletes only, wearing a shirt that said, ask me about being an elite athlete, the other is tall arrogant, flamboyant, striking, someone you'd pick out as an elite athlete in a drone shot of Times Square. We're going to talk about two wildly dissimilar stars who came to define their era through their differences as much as their similarities, who came to be so identified with one another that anything you say about one of them is almost inevitably a statement about the other and who have whatever it is that makes us compelled to watch everything they do. We're going to talk about my least favorite word in sports. I'll tell you what that is in a minute. Are we also going to talk about a couple of World Cup goals while we're at it? Eh, we'll see what happens. This is not a soccer podcast. This is a book club of the superstar's soul. Let's put on our reading glasses. All right, Lionel Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo. I don't have to tell you who these guys are, right? Like, we don't really need to do the whole born in blah, blah, in the year, blah thing with Messi and Ronaldo, do we? Let's be quick. Lionel Messi, Leo Messi, Argentinian, 35 years old, diagnosed as a child with a growth hormone deficiency, famously joined the FC Barcelona Youth Academy because they agreed to pay for his treatment, paid them back by winning everything under the sun and revolutionizing modern soccer under the tiki-taka style associated with manager Pep Guardiola, though Guardiola rejects the term. No emo band wants to be called emo. Now starring for PSG alongside Kylian Mbappe, whom we talked about way back in episode three, and Neymar, whom we will talk about on a future podcast called 22 Imaginary ACL Tears. Messi led Argentina to the South American Championship in 2021, putting to rest a long-simmering argument that he underperformed at the international level, considered by many millions of people to be the greatest player of all time, has never won a World Cup. Cristiano Ronaldo Ronaldo, not that Ronaldo. There's already a Ronaldo. We covered him in episode two. Everyone just calls him Ronaldo anyway. Don't get me started. Portuguese, 37 years old, son of a cook and a gardener, diagnosed as a teenager with tachycardia, 
underwent heart surgery. No club had to pay for the heart surgery because Portugal has national health care. Rose to international superstardom, playing for Manchester United from 2003 to 2009, then rose to something significantly beyond international superstardom, playing for Real Madrid, the hated rival of Lionel Messi's Barcelona. Scored 450 goals in 438 total appearances for Real Madrid. That is offensive. Moved to Juventus, moved back to Manchester United, where things turned very, very sour. Did you hear the interview he gave to Piers Morgan, the one where he basically drove a giant bus to the studio and proceeded to throw everyone who's ever been associated with Manchester United under it? It turns out Cristiano Ronaldo is great at bridge burning. You could say that Cristiano Ronaldo is the Cristiano Ronaldo of burning bridges, and it worked. One day before this podcast went live, Manchester United and Ronaldo parted ways by, and please picture me doing massive, exaggerated, cartoonish air quotes here, mutual consent. Cristiano led Portugal to the European Championship in 2016, putting to rest a long-simmering argument that he underperformed at the international level, considered by many millions of people to be the greatest player of all time, has never won a World Cup. Okay, enough Meet the Mets, we've got two players who are mirror images of each other, who spent nearly a decade going up against each other in the biggest rivalry in soccer. No offense to Slough Town versus Maidenhead United. Even their personalities seem like polar opposites. Messi has struck people for most of his career as quiet, modest, maybe a little shy, a little boyish, a shaggy kid who just loved running after a ball. Cristiano has struck people for most of his career as a dude who wears mirrored aviators and pink polo shirts with Speedos, mostly due to the large number of photos that exist of him wearing mirrored aviators and pink polo shirts with Speedos. It's a choice. I'll tell you what, I'm going to assume beyond this that you have a basic working knowledge of these two guys, I'm less interested in rehashing their careers or recapping their highlights. Recapping highlights? Couldn't be me. Then at trying to get at something more basic about these two stars and the way they seem locked into each other's gravitational orbits for all time. There is a question hanging over this episode like a math folder over a controversial book I have heroically not read. The question is, why does athletic greatness seem to invite or even to generate this kind of extreme contrast? Why do we love to pair great athletes together in these sort of everlasting abstract rivalries? Ali and Frazier, Federer and Nadal, Larry Bird and Magic Johnson, Chris Evert and Martina Navratilova, 
Arnold Palmer and Jack Nicholas, Nancy Carrigan and Tanya Harding, kind of, Lionel Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo. Why is it so much fun when stars come in twos, and does it help or hurt our sense of them as individuals when we start to define them in that way? What does it mean, for instance, that every four years, both Messi and Ronaldo are lumped together in the same World Cup narrative? Google, Messi, Ronaldo, last chance, and you will be treated to hundreds of articles about how the two stars are both still striving to win their first World Cup, about how the World Cup is the giant blank space on their resumes, the thing they don't have that Pele and Maradona do, about how one of them winning it might help tip the greatest of all time scale toward them and away from their rival, about how winning a World Cup would, quote, complete their legacies. Legacies. Hello, my ancient nemesis. Remember how I told you we were going to talk about my least favorite word in sports? Yes, it is legacy. Let's talk about it. To be clear, I'm not against the idea that athletes' careers become stories. I'm not against telling those stories after they retire. And I'm not against comparing those stories. Some bodies of work are more impressive or more moving or whatever than others. That's all fine. What I hate is when sports people use legacy as a mental shortcut to impose a preconceived narrative on players' real, messy human lives. What do I mean by that? I mean the idea that there is some ideal sports narrative and that we can judge players based on how close they come to matching it, that there's one standard and the greatest player is whoever most convincingly cosplays that one standard. I don't like that at all. What's an example? Let's say Roger Federer. You used to hear murmurs when Federer was first starting to slip down in the rankings that he should retire now because it would tarnish his legacy to slip down the rankings. It's this Michael Jordan idea that if you're the best player ever, you're supposed to go out on top. And if you don't, if people see you losing to players you'd have beaten handily in your prime, it will somehow tarnish your memory. The ideal narrative is that you make the last shot, win the last tournament, whatever, and retire as the reigning champion. But that's so dumb. Roger Federer is not living some theoretical life where he's checking things off the generic athlete to-do list. He's living his own life. If he wanted to be the 32nd best tennis player alive at the age of 41, well, what's wrong with being the 32nd best tennis player alive if you're enjoying it? What's wrong with retiring when Federer chose to retire? I like the idea that athletes are all unique. They're writing their own stories, and we evaluate those stories on their own terms. And how we evaluate them after the fact 
shouldn't be such a huge factor in determining the choices an athlete makes in the present. When it comes to Messi and Ronaldo, the legacy conversation is really not that bad most of the time, but it's not great around the World Cup. What I get a little itchy about is when people use the World Cup to focus on scales of all-time greatness with Messi on one side and Ronaldo on the other, when people assume that Ronaldo's career would be lessened if Messi won the World Cup or vice versa. Obviously, if you win the World Cup, that's great for your story. Of course it is. But the thing is, no matter how good you are at soccer, you're not solely in charge of whether you win the World Cup. You have teammates, etc. The thought experiment I always fall back on here is, what if the most talented player in the history of the world were born in the federated states of Micronesia? Micronesia has about 115,000 people. They have a national soccer team, but you could put Pele and Maradona both on that team, and they still wouldn't win the World Cup. They're not part of FIFA. They can't even compete in a World Cup. So take this hypothetical Micronesian superstar. Does it diminish his legacy that he'll never win the World Cup? Of course not. So do you have to win a World Cup to be the greatest player of all time? Because if you think so, you're basically saying only people with passports from a select few countries have a chance of being the greatest. And that's obviously unfair because you don't get to decide where you're born or how talented the other players on your national team are. It has nothing to do with Ronaldo's legacy if Argentina happens to have an amazing defense. It has nothing to do with Messi's legacy if Bruno Fernandez makes a penalty that gives Ronaldo a World Cup win. That's like saying you're broke because I won the lottery. You're not. Also, you're more than welcome to hang out on my yacht. We can sail around Micronesia, scout the local talent. Okay, rant over. Sorry. But let's agree now that we're going to look at Messi's and Ronaldo's World Cup histories for what they are. And whatever happens, let's resist the temptation to judge them by how closely they resemble some two-dimensional, zero-sum straw man of the perfect athletic career. This episode is brought to you by Thomas's. Thomas's presents Pondering the Bagel with Tom. Oh, the paradox of the bagel. Tis crunchy yet soft. Tis filling yet has a hole. Tis a vehicle for spreads, but only travels from toaster to plate. Thomas's. Huzzah! A toast to breakfast. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. 
When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hi. Hello. Wow. I think... I just had a sports rant. Doesn't happen often. I'm not saying I'm a hero. Because what's a hero? But sometimes there's a man. Sometimes there's a man. Who belongs on AM radio? Lionel Messi entered the 2022 World Cup having scored six goals in previous iterations of the tournament And there's one weird thing about that statistic. The weird thing is that three of those goals came against Nigeria. 50% of Messi's World Cup goals were scored against the Super Eagles. Incredible nickname, by the way. That's three goals in two separate matches in two separate World Cups. Two goals in 2014 in the last match in Group F, and another goal in 2018 in the last match in Group D. What's even weirder is that if you look back over Messi's career, he just loves playing Nigeria. Goal.com, the soccer news site, literally once ran a slideshow about him called The Man Nigeria Couldn't Stop, scored two goals to beat Nigeria in 2005 in the FIFA World Youth Championship, set up the winning goal against Nigeria in the gold medal match at the Olympics in 2008. The list goes on. The Super Eagles' time will come. Three of Messi's six World Cup goals against the same team. There's something distinctly Messi-like about the sheer oddness of that statistic. There's always been something weirdly hard to grasp, something weirdly understated about Messi, considering his position in the game. If I ventured in the slipstream, I think about that Van Morrison line sometimes when I watch him play. Messi has just always seemed to belong in the slipstream. He's not overt. He's one of the hardest soccer players to describe because he seems to live in this sort of invisible world that's overlaid on top of the game. You know how Frodo slips on the one ring And suddenly he's in that realm where everything is made out of, like, hissy white lines. Messi lives in hissy white line world all the time. There are parts of the game that, as a fan, maybe even as a player, you're theoretically aware of but can't really see. 
Things like how time unfolds around a long pass or how space is going to open up in a group of players reacting to the ball. You watch Messi, this little guy slightly hunched over with his head kind of down and at an angle. And at first, he doesn't draw your eye at all. And then you slowly realize that all that incorporeal stuff you're only theoretically aware of is physically real to one person on the pitch, and it's him. I know that I can see through time is something you say as a joke, like you had a third cup of coffee on a Wednesday morning and ha ha ha, you're now suspended between interplanetary dimensions. Messi can see through time. This is not hyperbole. He's got the ball. He's moving toward the goal, and he very rarely runs head-on at it. He's almost always slightly and strangely sidelong, on an angle that doesn't quite make mathematical sense. He's moving toward the goal, and all the feet of all the players around him are hitting the ground in a pattern that's too complex and arrhythmic to predict. But Messi seems to see the pattern in his head like a drum solo in whiplash. He moves past one player, he nutmegs another, he shoots just as one guy is lunging out with his foot, so the ball slides under him at the exact angle necessary to miss the goalkeeper's lunge by about a centimeter. You do that once, fine, that's luck. Lionel Messi scored 91 goals in 2012. That is not luck. And a lot of them, like a lot of them, have that same uncanny, ethereal quality. A Lionel Messi goal happens very slowly, even while the game is moving very fast. Messi's best-known World Cup goal is possibly the long-distance screamer he hit against Iran in 2014. Incredible LRB. You can hear the awe in the commentator's voice, but you don't have to listen for it because he tells you outright that no defense in the world could have stopped this goal. Messi. Messi shot. That was the year he won the Golden Ball as the best player in the Men's World Cup. Also the year he led Argentina to the final, where they lost to Germany 1-0 in extra time. The LRB against Iran was a beautiful shot, a long, curling strike that slipped between two defenders and arced into the net past the outstretched hands of Iran's goalkeeper, Ali Reza Haigigi. You can hear the quality of the strike in the commentator's helpless yelp of pleasure as the ball hits the back of the net. With Messi, he'll go for goal Oh, my goodness gracious me! But for me, I think my favorite of Messi's six World Cup goals is the one he scored against Bosnia and Herzegovina in that same World Cup. It's not necessarily a better goal, 
but it's a goal that more clearly embodies what makes Messi so special to watch. So picture Messi with the ball. He's inside the Bosnia and Herzegovina half. I'm just gonna call them Bosnia from now on for brevity's sake. No offense to you, Herzegovina. He's inside the half and he's running toward the right touchline. Again, at a slightly oblique angle, just dragging defenders a little out of their comfort zones. He passes to Gonzalo Higuain, and as soon as the ball is gone, he turns on the speed and cuts inside his nearest defender. Higuain, seeing that Messi has beaten one man and has a lot of green grass in front of him, plays the ball right back. Little one-two. Messi keeps cutting inside, but again, at a slightly flatter angle than you might expect. He's got the Bosnian defensive midfielder, Muhammad Besic, the guy he cut inside, glued to his hip, but on the wrong side of him, the side away from the goal. And the angle is such that for a few steps, it looks like he's running parallel to the 18-yard line, but he's actually getting closer to it. Four Bosnian defenders now ahead of him, two of them directly between him and the goal. One of those two, Ermin Bicakcic, comes out and tries to knock the ball away from him. Only Messi, and this happens all the time with Messi, is somehow not exactly where Bicakcic expected, even though he also doesn't appear to have altered his pace or direction. Bicakcic misses the tackle. He takes out Besic, the defensive midfielder. Those guys both hit the ground just as Messi shoots past the three remaining Bosnian defenders, past the windmilling Bosnian goalkeeper, Azmir Begovic, and into the left side of the goal. This is a quietly sensational goal. It's also the goal that ended years of muttering about Messi not getting it done on the international stage after he'd failed to score during the 2010 Men's World Cup in South Africa. And you can hear the significance of the moment in the commentator's voice as Messi breaks his eight-year World Cup goal drought. Messi kept going. It's Lionel Messi! Cristiano Ronaldo has one more World Cup goal than Messi. He has seven. He also has scored three of his World Cup goals against a single team. In his case, that team is Spain, and he did it all in one group stage match in 2018 in Russia. He scored a hat trick in that game. We already talked about one of those goals, actually, on the program. Remember the incredible match-tying free kick that led to the whole Portuguese team refusing to celebrate with the poor defender, Jose Font? Maybe you listened to that episode. Maybe you didn't. Maybe you were reading a Salman Rushdie novel. Good for you. Anyway, we discussed it. To watch Cristiano Ronaldo is, of course, a completely different experience from watching Leo Messi. 
Cristiano Ronaldo does not venture in the slipstream so much as he knocks the slipstream on its ass. He's not Frodo wearing the one ring so much as he is the elvish river crashing into the Nazgul and sweeping them all to hell. Mystery is not a key component of the way Cristiano Ronaldo plays. If Messi is a story about the perfect crime, Ronaldo is a story about someone flipping to the last page of the book containing the story of the perfect crime, chuckling softly to himself, and throwing the book in the trash. You can see how he does it. He does it by being faster than you. He does it by having quicker reflexes than you. He does it by working harder than you. He does it by wanting it more than you do. He does it by running straight at you and then being smarter than you during the ensuing chaos. And if we're talking about young Ronaldo, he does all that plus a strobe light flurry of stepovers. Everything with Ronaldo is as straightforward, flashy, and unmistakable as possible. His logo is CR7, his initials plus his number, usually gem-encrusted. His goal celebration, Sue, is choreographed and identical from one goal to the next, the better to maintain his brand. He has 478 million Instagram followers. That's a real number. The only Instagram account with more followers than Cristiano's is Instagram's Instagram account. All his posts are either black and white photos of his abs in a sauna, Getty images looking shots of him playing soccer, or paid partnerships that show him grinning madly next to a well-lit bottle of shampoo. The biggest controversy in Messi's career is one that's a little weird and hard to parse. This whole tax evasion scandal in Spain. Don't look it up. It's pretty boring. But like Messi himself, it's at least unexpected. The biggest scandal in Ronaldo's career is the most straightforward and disturbing and stereotypically awful controversy a superstar male athlete can be involved in. A woman said that he sexually assaulted her in Las Vegas in 2009. Also, stereotypically, for a superstar male athlete, his career seems to have suffered no repercussions from the woman's account. Various legal cases and investigative news reports slid by over many years without ever bumping his soccer exploits off the front page. And the civil case the woman filed against him was dismissed with prejudice by a judge in Nevada earlier this year, not necessarily because the case itself was so weak, but because of what the judge deemed misbehavior by the plaintiff's lawyer. He remains a force on the pitch. He has slowed down a bit lately, though in fairness, he still managed like one goal every two games for a dismal Manchester United team last season. He's 37. 
both Messi and Ronaldo have come a bit closer to Earth, just a little bit, over the past season or so. It happens. But in general, Ronaldo as an athlete is one of the most terrifying things I have ever seen. I read somewhere, I cannot remember where, some novel, I think, about World War I soldiers debating whether they wanted to see the artillery shell that killed them coming or not. Would you rather have a second to know you were about to die, to prepare yourself, even if only for a second, or would you rather be obliviously going about your business and then everything goes dark? And here is how athlete dyads affect your brain. Because when I read that, I thought, oh, it's Messi versus Ronaldo. Messi is the shell you don't see coming. You see Ronaldo coming, and you know it's going to hurt. My favorite Ronaldo World Cup goal, I really had to think about this. That free kick to level the match against Spain in 2018 was pretty epic, actually. But I think my favorite Ronaldo World Cup goal is the one he scored in 2010 against North Korea. I had to think about it because this goal came in the final minutes of a 7-0 Portugal win. Not the biggest moment, not the toughest opposition, Still, it's just such a fun goal, and it's the essence of Ronaldo as a soccer player. It's devastating. Hardly any other living person could pull it off. And it's an act of flagrant showing off. So, okay, picture Cristiano in the middle of the pitch, breaking toward the North Korean box. There's been a scramble in midfield, the Portuguese striker Liedson has knocked the ball behind the North Korean defense, and now Liedson and Ronaldo are also in behind the defense, racing after the ball. They're being chased by two North Korean defenders. It's chaos. The North Korean goalkeeper, Ri Myung-guk, comes charging forward toward the ball and slides down to stop it. The goalkeeper, the ball, and Ronaldo all collide at the edge of the area. Ronaldo's toe hits the ball first, and it skips up a little in the air, at which point it appears to hit the goalkeeper's leg. The ball bounces off Ree's leg and goes boinging up into the air, just as the sliding Ree trips Ronaldo up. Ronaldo jumps to avoid him, and he's partially successful. He kicks his back leg way out behind him. So there are stills from this goal where he looks like the flash in mid-sprint. But now, the ball is too high up for him to do anything with it. So as he's coming down, he ducks his head, which means the ball now falls down on his upper back. He's still running forward, but he's bent over, and the ball lands on the top of his spine. Still running forward, 
he straightens up in such a way that the ball flips up off his back, arcs over his shoulder, maybe grazes the top of his head, and lands at his feet in the perfect position for him to flick it into the open net. Goal. And listen to the commentator's tone. It's a little flat. This is not a World Cup final. This is not a match whose outcome is in doubt or a game against Germany or Brazil. And stolen here by Lietzen. It's Ronaldo who's getting there first. It's six. But they have indeed been magic. Not the highest stakes, but you know what? It's Cristiano Ronaldo. Cristiano Ronaldo was built to win game 7-0, and it's such a fun goal in the specific genre of fun that Ronaldo specializes in. The sort of fun where you think, well, that's cheeky, and then you think, well, he can't possibly pull that off, and then he pulls it off, and then he looks at you like, yeah, I sure did. I still have the copy of the Satanic Verses I bought in the sixth grade. I never did read it. Sorry, Mrs. McConaughey. So I don't know if there's anything in it that would help me understand what it feels like to be one of the two most lionized footballers of the 21st century. Probably not. Probably not exactly what Rushdie was going for. My own career as a global hero was short-lived and anonymous, and likewise not very useful in putting me in their shoes. But I did take the book down from the shelf the other day. It's a little yellowed now. I saw that I had signed my name in the inside front cover. Do all kids do that in, like, super sixth-grade boy cursive? meaning you can picture the tip of my tongue poking out the corner of my mouth as I tried earnestly and not very successfully to make the signature legible. But anyway, I was paging through this book, and I realized that I did read the beginning back in sixth grade. I read, ah, it must have been the first 15 or 20 pages, and as soon as I looked at the book, I remembered them clearly. At the beginning of the Satanic Verses, a plane explodes over London, and these two passengers, two men, are falling from the sky. And the way Rushdie writes about them, they're just regular human beings, but in this moment, they're invested with a strange sort of religious significance. One of them may be an angel, one of them may be a devil, but it's not entirely clear which is which. And as they fall from the sky, they're arguing with each other. Or more precisely, they are singing at each other. They're having a conversation by singing rival songs. Rushdie says, Let's face it, it was impossible for them to have heard one another, much less conversed and also competed thus in song accelerating toward the planet, atmosphere roaring around them. But let's face this, too. They did. 
And so these two guys falling from the stratosphere appear to have gotten caught up in some larger cosmic battle. Their fates are now intertwined. They're bound together in some mysterious way for all time. I should probably finish the book, but do you remember the question we asked earlier? The math folder over the controversial book cover question. Question is, why are we so irresistibly drawn to contrasting pairs of athletes? Why do we need a Peyton Manning to have a Tom Brady? Why do we need Messi and Ronaldo to be bound together for all time? I think it has to do with what we were saying before about legacy. Yes, that word again. Remember how we were saying that the problem with the idea of legacy in sports is that it's often deployed to fit talented people into this sort of generic model of what a great athlete is supposed to look like? In other words, the problem with legacy is that it's homogenizing. It tends to make athletes seem kind of uniform. The difference between them is just by what percentage they deviate from the ideal that was established in a three-way summit between Gatorade, Nike, and ESPN the day the first mammal emerged from the sea. The first mammal emerged from the sea and was immediately called clutch by like seven talking heads on TV while seven other talking heads pointed out that this mammal had never won a championship. I don't know. I think one of the reasons we love these eternal athlete rivalries is that they give us an excuse to talk about differences, to really dive into what makes one star unlike another. And differences are what make things unique, to state the blindingly obvious. So in a weird way, messy in a vacuum is just a bunch of stats to put next to Pelé's stats or Maradona's stats or whatever. But put Messi next to Ronaldo. And now, suddenly, you get to talk about all the ways Messi stands out. You get to notice that subtlety that uncanny sense of angles, that quietness, that odd calm he spreads all around him. And you get to look at Ronaldo and say, oh, he's a virtuoso. He's a rock guitar solo in human form. He's a Greek statue with terrible taste in belt buckles. He thinks the world revolves around him, and all evidence suggests that he's right. And maybe neither of those descriptions gets at the true inner life of either player. Maybe neither says anything about what it's like to be Messi or Ronaldo. But they do something maybe more important to us. They give us a way to talk about what we feel when we watch them play. I don't know what's going to happen at the Men's World Cup in Qatar this year. Could either of them win it? Sure. Will either of them win it? Probably not. I don't know. It would be naive for me to say that for one of them to win it wouldn't change anything 
about how we told each of their stories. Of course it would, but I'm less worried about whether one of them will ever win the World Cup than I am intrigued by the prospect of seeing their differences play out, seeing the cosmic struggle play out on a big stage one more time so we can see them more clearly by seeing them in the same World Cup, vying for the same trophy one last time. So that afterward, we can say, let's face it, it was impossible for them to have heard one another, much less conversed, and also competed thus in song. But let's face this, too. They did. This is 22 Goals, the story of the World Cup, written by me, Brian Phillips. The executive producers of 22 Goals are Chris Ryan, Juliet Littman, and Sean Fennessy. Our story editor is Connor Nevins. The show was produced by Devin Ronaldo, Mike Wargon, and Vikram Patel. Fact-checking by Kellen B. Coates. Kellen says that it's, quote, a subjective claim to say that I clearly deserved a Nobel Peace Prize at the age of 13 and that I, quote, cannot say I objectively deserve the Nobel Peace Prize. So thanks to Kellen for clearing that up. The sound design in this episode is by Devin Rinaldo, who also composed the theme song and many of the music tracks. Additional mixing by Scott Somerville, art direction and illustration by David Shoemaker, match footage from FIFA. Thanks for listening. From the Diary of Brian Phillips. March 4th. 1989. Dear Diary, how are you today? Ha ha ha, I realize you're not a sentient being. I am well. I almost had an opportunity to talk to Rachel M. after basketball practice today, but just as I was walking up to her, I remembered that I was supposed to go to my locker to put in some of the extra blank paper that I'd been carrying around in my backpack, so I had no choice but to accelerate right past her without making eye contact. Tough break, right, diary? But there's always next time. Well, I hope things are going great in diary land. Ha ha ha. I should get going. Oh, and I almost forgot. I have decided that tomorrow will be the day when I finally end the Cold War. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.